Today we are beginning this series called Binge the Bible. Binge the Bible. I've had three of you already tell me that you hate that name. So that's great. That's exciting. As we start a multi-year series here at the church that we are proud of. I'll tell you where we came up with that name, and then I'll tell you the idea for this series. So, uh, television has changed, hasn't it? Don't you wish that there was some sort of... Look, right now I've got 20 different subscriptions, and they cost me about $800 a month, and uh, I can't ever remember what I was watching where, you know? A, re- a new season of something will release somewhere, and I'll be like, what was that? I can't remember. And I have to go back and re-watch the whole season all over again, or I find a show that I really like, and I forget where it was, and I can't ever find it. I never watch it again. It's gone and all of this. I just wish there was like one service you could pay a fee for every month and it would all be right there. Maybe like with a guide that just scrolled through and told you what was on at any time of the day. And Anyways, I'm describing cable. Streaming services have changed the game, and uh, I remember in the cable days, you know, every week, and a lot of, some of the streaming services are still like this, but every week you would watch your show, and then you would wait a week to watch the next episode of the show. You remember that? Seven days. Anybody around for the Lost years? Okay, there was a TV show called Lost that dominated my life when I was in college and early Coast Guard years, and I remember every week, I would, it was like serious. I needed to know. There were so many questions I needed answered, and I would just all week long be thinking about it, be talking about it, just be in contemplation about it, and then it would be one hour, they would answer no questions, and then I'd spend the whole next week wondering, and uh, I would get this show one little piece at a time, and you would be able to catch all these fine threads, but sometimes with a show, especially like a complicated one like Lost, you would lose a little bit of the arc over the time it took to watch the show. You would miss some of the theming. You would forget about something that happened 10 episodes back that you were supposed to remember now. And I remember when Netflix came out and started dropping whole shows at once, we were all obsessed. We were all spending an entire weekend just watching one show. You, some, some people would just go, it's a 10-episode show. There's 10 hours in a day. Let's do this. I'm aware that there's more than 10 hours in a day, but you've, you get my meaning. Binging changed the game, and when we binge a TV show, we are able to see the whole picture a lot clearer. It's e- you may miss some of the finer details, but it's easier to follow the whole scope of the story when you watch it in a short period of time. In this series, what we want to do is kind of apply that principle to the Bible. We want to binge watch the Bible. We want this story to be unbelievably clear to us as we consume it quickly. What we're going to do is we're going to take it in seasons. This is season one. We'll be doing this until we start our summer series, Summer at the Gathering. And then we'll do other things in the fall. Next year we'll come back and do season two. And what we're going to do is start with Genesis. Today I'm going to teach the 50 chapters of Genesis. So hopefully you're comfortable. And, uh, and then we're going to come back and tomorrow, next week, next Sunday, we'll teach on Exodus. And the following Sunday is going to be Leviticus. And I know you guys are excited about Leviticus. I know you can't wait to show up. I'm telling it's week three, so just get it on your calendar already, okay? I know that some of you guys got to skip one Sunday a month. Make it next Sunday, all right? Watch the Prince of Egypt and then come back for Leviticus. Don't skip next Sunday, please. We want you here. All right. So today we're going to begin, and we're going to begin in this story of Genesis. And I'm so excited about this. I, I, I'm passionate about the story of the Bible. 
I love to look at the Bible as a story. In fact, my salvation story is that I never understood what the Bible was trying to say, and then one day I read it from cover to cover in a couple of months quickly and understand for the, understood for the first time who God was, what he wanted for me, what he would do for me, and how much he loved me, and it changed everything about my life. I'm passionate about this story. Because it is an incredible story about a God who has cared about you from the beginning of it all. And Genesis illustrates that for us perfectly. Genesis is one of my absolute favorite books of the Bible. I don't know if there's another book, aside from maybe the Gospel of John, that I've studied more than the book of Genesis. I love it. I love, I love the many different movements of Genesis. I love the way that Genesis tells these big, unbelievable, sweeping stories. The opening lines of Genesis are iconic. In the beginning, God. Whoa, I mean, come on. That's how you open a crawl, Star Wars. That's a good way to get going. It's a great story. And I think that the, this morning, what I want us to understand is that even though Genesis covers more time than any other book of the Bible, it is telling a clear and consistent story throughout its 50 chapters. It's 50 chapters long, which means I don't have time today to debate the timeline of creation or exposit the age of the earth. Some of you were hoping that as we got into Genesis that we'd be talking about what the heck's up with dinosaurs today. And I, listen, I don't know what the heck is up with dinosaurs. I don't know. What do I look like, an archaeologist? We're not talking about dinosaurs today. What I'm going to do today is explain the whole of the story of Genesis. And so let's begin with a little bit of background. Genesis was written by Moses, the guy that parted the Red Sea. Moses, let my people go. Moses. Moses wrote the book of Genesis in 1500 B.C. Uh, he wrote the whole first five books of the Bible, as a matter of fact. We refer to it as the Pentateuch or the Torah, which is the books of the law. The first five books of the Bible were written by Moses. Moses was not there for the events of Genesis he didn't see it. He wasn't there for it. In fact, he used two primary sources in writing the Pentateuch and in writing the book of Genesis. And the first source was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, God's voice, moved in him, gave him words to speak, get, told him how, what had happened, and he wrote it down. In fact, all of the books of the Bible were written by men, regular guys. They weren't, God, there's not a point where a pen just started moving and writing things down. That would be awesome. It's not how it happened. God used men, regular people, and he would divinely inspire them to write the pages of Scripture. Uh, it's a gift called prophecy. When we think of the gift of prophecy, oftentimes we think of somebody coming up to us with a cloak and a wooden stick and saying, you're going to break your leg next Thursday. And then next Thursday, boom, broken leg. Whoa, that was awesome. And honestly, that is in the Bible. That's part of the gift of prophecy. But the primary aspect of the gift of prophecy in Scripture is the voice of God speaking through the mouths of men. The voice of God speaking through the mouths of men is the gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy through the Holy Spirit manifests in these writers of the Bible. That was Moses' number one source. His second source, he had multiple sources, as any good writer does, was the people of God. 
Ooh, 2 Timothy 3.16. This is about the people writing, uh, using the Holy Spirit. It says, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Divine inspiration. And then the second source that Moses used was the people of God. In these times, histories were primarily passed through oral tradition. There were not a lot of written histories. Our understanding of the ancient world is scarce. What we've discovered from archaeology and a few scattered writings put together, very few ancient histories are as complete as the history that we have in the Bible. In fact, almost all of the histories in the times of Moses, 1500 B.C., as he's writing this, are oral tradition. They were passed down from generation to generation. People would share their stories. The elders of communities would gather everyone around and tell the stories. And the stories of Genesis were the most important stories to the Hebrew people. They were passed down from one generation to the next. They would have been repeated word for word. Children would have been forced to memorize these stories word for word so that they could repeat the history of their people one to another. And Moses took those oral histories and recorded them for the book of Genesis. So those are our two sources. Uh, Genesis happens in three movements. So scholars separate it into three sections, and that's how we're going to separate it today as we try to understand it. It's creation is the first movement. The second movement is covenant, and the third movement is captivity. Creation, covenant, and captivity, and it's really broken down pretty clearly in these three areas. And so, as we get into creation today, let's look at this incredible opening lines of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Do you see how easy it is to repeat orally? We can remember it. We can understand it. The first chapter of Genesis is a type of ancient literature called creation poetry. It's a style of writing seen in multiple cultures from the age. It's a format that creation stories normally appear in. And the reason is that these stories were often repeated in oral tradition. It's the way they appeared in this poetry form. And this format was easier to remember. A good interpretation historically of Genesis chapter 1 would be that Moses is recording the word-for-word story that the Hebrew people would have memorized for retelling an oral tradition. And from there, it goes into a much more detailed description of the creation of man in Genesis chapter 2. So if you've ever read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, maybe you've seen that Genesis chapter 1, it covers a lot. And then it zooms back in. In chapter 2, it's covering stuff that we already talked about in chapter 1. It's like, hey, let's get going. we got 50 chapters. Let's move it, Moses. But what he's doing here is first revealing to you the poetry of creation. It is beautiful. It is memorable. Memorable. It is memorable. And it is repeatable. And then he is bringing the story into story mode. He's going to start telling the story of our creation there in chapter 2. God creates man from the dust of the earth and his very own breath of life, his spirit. 
the same word that when it talks about, if we go back and remember it says that the spirit of God was hovering over the water. God takes that spirit and he breathes it into this man that he formed from the dust of the earth. And now you have a created being that is equal parts spirit and flesh. Of all creation, nothing else is as unique as you, as amazing as you, as created, as specially as you. God says he made that the devil tells is that if you eat the fruit from the garden, you will be like God. And this is what the devil does. He offers you things you already have. You are already like God. You were made in his image. You have his spirit living inside of you. It is part of your creation. And so we see the man being created here in chapter 2. And it says, the Lord does this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and care for it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. We were made to have purpose and work. Did you notice that work is a part of our story before the fall of humanity? Before man is is pushed from the garden, God gives him a job to do. That is part of our fundamental beliefs as followers of Jesus is that we were created with a purpose. You were made to do work. Doing work is a part of your creation. But you were made to do the kind of work that builds the kingdom of God that helps to craft it closer and closer to the garden he had in mind. And so God creates man and he has him working. And he gives Adam a lot of freedom and the ability to make really just one choice against God's will. Why? Why did he do that? Why did God create man and give him the ability to make a choice against his will? Why did he create a rule? Why not just say, hey, welcome to the garden. It's all yours. Enjoy. You know, put that one tree on the outside of the garden. Why not, you know? Or why not, you know, not even, just don't bring it up. Because if you, how many of you know if you don't want your kids to do something, don't ask them not to do it. Just don't mention it. And they probably won't do it. But if you say, do not climb on top of the counter, you're going to turn around and there's going to be a child on the counter, okay? It's the nature of man. So why did God do that? God did that because he desired real relationship. And real relationship requires the choice to be in the relationship. If you are in a relationship without a choice, if you are in a relationship that you are forced to be in, that you're not given a way out of, you are not in a relationship, you are in captivity. Get out of there. Call the police. God did not desire a people who were in captivity. He desired a people who were free. Free. Free to make a choice. So he created one. And... Adam, he, he's lonely, and so uh, he asks, he looks around, he's like, there's two tigers, there's two llamas, there's two platypuses, where's, where's my other God? I'm lonely, there's not a helper suitable for me. Helper, and God makes Eve out of Adam's rib. Adam takes a super deep nap, and God creates another person, and now Eve and Adam are together. Moses takes a break here in chapter 2, and he says, and this is why a man leaves his father and mother, and they're joined together, and, and he kind of gives the, the wedding passage that we we uh, share at weddings, and the, it's kind of like a moment where Moses steps out of the story, like, a, like when the preacher comes in front of his table, and he, um, all right, so anyways, we're back in the story, uh, we're at chapter three, uh, Adam and Eve are living in the garden, this tree is there, 
And uh, by the way, one more, one more fun fact, and then we're done with fun facts, and we're going to move through the next 47 chapters. Uh, chapter 3, and we're going to begin there, and, and we're, we're looking at this, this verse, you know, about the fall of man. And maybe you've wondered why your Bible has chapters and verses. Your Bible was not written with chapters and verses and subject lines, okay? It wasn't put together that way. In fact, those didn't appear until 1560. The year 1560 AD is the first time we see a Bible published with chapters and verses. The Geneva Bible is published with chapters and verses in 1560. Why? Why did that happen? Why was it so long after the Bible was written? Well, they are there because this was the first time people like you and me had access, widespread access, to a printed Bible. Nobody before 1560 had that kind of access. Maybe somebody did, but it would have been rare and unbelievable. There weren't making these things available to the public until 1560. And in 1560, most of the people were not the best readers, okay? They weren't hooked on phonics at this time, all right? They, they were mostly receiving stories through listening. And those who could read, they weren't scholars. And this was 1,388 pages of this Geneva Bible. And they needed to make it easier for people to understand and research and study. Why? I believe the Spirit just moved them to do it because God wants to be known. He wants to be accessible. He doesn't want to be far from you. And so they added the chapters and verses so that it would all be easier to navigate. But what that happens is it, what that does to us is it makes us separate everything into individual stories. A chapter ends and we're thinking, that's the end of that part. What's the next part? But what the Bible is, is a continual story. And it is important not to get distracted by the ending of a chapter or by the changing of a verse or by a new subject line and miss that there is a bigger story being told here. Genesis chapter 2 to Genesis chapter 3 carries on one big story. And it's all part of this first movement. Uh, now, we spent six weeks telling the story of Genesis chapter 3 this year in a, in a series called Live No Lies. So I don't have to spend a lot of time on it. But Adam and Eve are tempted by the enemy, by the devil, to break the only rule, and they break it. So now, what are they, what's going to happen? They, they, and why? Why did they have this rule to break? God wants us to experience real love. Real love has to be a choice, which means there has to be an opposite choice. We chose to disobey God, and in doing so, humanity chose death. And the next eight chapters of Scripture paint the picture of how deeply humanity made that choice. The depravity of man grows with his distance from God. The further man is from the presence of God, the more depraved he becomes. After Adam and Eve make this mistake, they are cast from the garden and out of the physical presence of God. And the next eight chapters of Genesis break down what kind of lows we sink to next. The next story is Genesis chapter 4 is the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel are sons of Adam and Eve. They're brothers. And Cain becomes envious of Abel because God shows favor to Abel. Abel is able to make good decisions and to please God, and Cain is not. And so he kills Abel with a rock. As far as we know, it's the first time a man kills another man. Depravity grows. Distance from God grows. We also see in the story of Cain and Abel, we also see the mercy of God existing alongside his justice. 
All throughout the Bible, you're going to see this common thread. There's a lot of threads that weave together for the whole story. And one of the most common threads is God's mercy accompanying his justice. He is a just, which was the consequence of the choice they made. He, wa- he weaves clothes for them out of animal skins so that they would have no shame and so that they would be warm and able to live in the elements. It is mercy combined with justice. When Cain is exiled because of the murder that he commits, God puts a mark on him. And the mark is not a punishment. The mark is to warn others that if they touch Cain, God's wrath will come upon them. He protects Cain from suffering the same fate that he gave to his brother. The mercy of God accompanying the justice of God. That's a common theme. So we see a few more stories like this kind of going on. And then we get to Genesis chapter 6 and the next big story in the Bible. And it's Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark. Now, if you grew up in a traditional church like I did, then you know Noah's Ark from the murals on the wall in the kids' ministry, okay? Big Noah's Ark mural on the wall, maybe a big Noah play set that you could play on. It was unbelievable. That play set is life. I love it so much. And if you don't know what in the world I'm talking about, you need to get into a Baptist church sometime and just see this thing, okay? All right. And uh, also, I noticed that we paint our walls with the Noah's Ark story in these churches, but it's not really the greatest, most child-friendly story. There's thousands of bodies floating in the water everywhere. I notice they don't put that on the mural, you know? It's kind of like, if you're going to do it, do it right, you know? Let's, let's traumatize these kids. Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark uh, story. It represents a moment, uh, a shift in the relationship between God and man. Noah's Ark and the Flood, they tell the story of humanity growing so far from God and so depraved in our sin that God decided to start over with the one man of faith who had goodness in him that he could find on the earth. Let's look at Genesis 6, 5. It says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. The Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. And with them, the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. So God is is ready to end everything. And then there is hope. He changes his mind because he finds a man who has faith in him, who is faithful, who still has goodness in his heart, who still reflects the character and the image of God. Verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, Noah represents a major turning point in the Bible between God and humanity. God tells Noah to build an ark big enough to house two of each animal on the earth because he's going to flood the earth, except for the dinosaurs. They drowned. And Noah does it. And uh, I don't have time in this series to debate the events of Genesis to convince you that these things really happened. I believe that it's a literal history and that these things did happen. That's what I believe. Maybe you need some convincing. I understand that. What's important for you to understand, what's important to note, is that on the other side of the flood, God makes a promise, a covenant with Noah and his descendants that he will never flood the earth again. And from here forward, we see the events start to fall into place that lead to the redemption of humanity through Jesus. Genesis 9 tells the story of Noah's sons and their descendants. And then in Genesis 10, we see this great story about man's hubris. 
They develop new technologies like bricks and tools. And instead of using them to honor God, they use them to honor themselves and just to see how far they can go. It's the same story that is being told still today, constantly. Humanity creates new technologies, new inventions, new things. And instead of seeing how can we worship God with this, how can we honor God with this, how can we make the world better with this, we just see how far it can go. Let's see what the heck, why not? Let's just let's make everything artificial intelligence. Terminator wasn't about that. It'll be fine. And we just keep going further and further and further with it. And that's kind of what Genesis 10 is about. It's the Tower of Babel. Man's hubris. They try to build a tower to heaven and, and God confuses the language of humanity at this time. And after that, uh, movement number one in Genesis ends. In these first 10 chapters, the point of them is for us to see and understand the nature of humanity after the fall. We consistently choose the things that hurt us. We consistently choose the things that hurt us. The distance between us and God caused by our sin is far and wide at the end of movement one. God is compassionate and gracious and merciful and kind. And we see that from Genesis chapter one on. But man is rebellious. And in a world where man doesn't know anything about God, how could he choose God? And the further man gets from the presence of God, the worse his depravity gets. So movement number one ends with humanity spreading out all over the earth. And then, thank goodness, Genesis chapter 11 comes along. And movement number two is called covenant. And in this part, the, the named Abram and Sarai. And through them, God begins a new story. Now, Abram and Sarai are the same people. Maybe you've heard the names Abraham and Sarah as we teach the Old Testament and we talk about fathers of the faith. And that is the same people. At some point, God just throws an H in there. And uh, through this couple, God begins a new story. Man chose sin in the garden, and for a long time, that's all he chooses. Because for us to even begin to make a better choice, we need closeness to the presence of God. Man broke the garden rules. We don't have access to closeness to God anymore. Depravity in the first movement. And then God reenters the story. And beginning with Abram, God would never step out of the story again. From Abram on, God would never, ever, ever remove his presence and make a spot where we could not enter into his presence again. In fact, we see the seeds being laid really going back further, but especially with Abram, to God having a plan to make sure that his presence is with us, within us, and available to us for all of eternity going forward. It begins right here in Genesis chapter 11, gives us the genealogy that leads us to Abraham, or Abram, and then in chapter 12, we get the first Abrahamic covenant. The Lord says to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We are in Genesis chapter 12, and God is prophesying the coming of Christ. It's the first spot. There is no way that all the peoples on the earth are going to be blessed by Abram. He is 75 years old at this moment. His wife is 65 and they have no kids. And God is saying, I'm going to make you a blessing for all the earth. In fact, through Abraham's descendants, we see a people grow. And the Israelite people were only through him that all the nations of the world would be blessed. This covenant 
that God is speaking to Abraham, that he is making with him, is prophesying that through him one day God has a plan to bring relationship to every person who breathes and lives on this earth. Crucial moment in the story. Now, Abraham is 75. Sarah is 65. They're not really sure how all this is going to work out. The Bible tells us that at this time, people lived longer, that the average lifespan is around 200 years. And so maybe they're okay at this point, but even they admit they're a little bit too old to have kids, but they have this hope because they have this promise. And time goes on. Time goes on and on and on. And they still have no kids. They have some big adventures, and they grow their relationship with God. But many years go by. And then God speaks to them again, and he reiterates the covenant and the promise, and he adds that they'll bear a son, and he changes their names to Abraham and Sarah, and now Sarah is about 90 years old, and she laughs at this idea. She's like, God, maybe you didn't go to biology, but there is something that happens to women that that you don't give birth at 90 years old, God, and Abraham is almost 100, and he's like, I don't know if if this is going to work or not. God had made this promise 25 years prior. 25 years. This wasn't the timing they expected. See, we see a consistent theme in the Bible. That God makes promises, but he never delivers on them in the timeline the people are expecting. I don't know whether or not you've experienced something like this. But what I find to be true about God is that his timing is different than our timing almost always. 25 years is a long time to wait on a promise. And by the time he delivered on it, it seemed impossible. God made a promise. 25 years go by, and the option for that promise to come true seemingly disappears. The promise to him, they hold a promise to her, and Abraham's like, if I must, I shall. And he does, and he, he, he knocks up Hagar, and they have a son, and it's a whole big mess. And then Sarah becomes pregnant, and God fulfills the promise. And Isaac is born. And Isaac was the son of Abraham and Sarah. And God pushes the covenant from uh, Abraham on to Isaac. In fact, there's a story in Genesis chapter 22 that is incredible to me because it reveals Jesus so much. And in that story, Abraham has his middle school aged son, Isaac. And God says, now you should know that when God re-enters into the relationship with Abraham, he brings into it a system of sacrifice. Because the penalty of sin is death. And in order for God to be in direct relationship with us, that sin can't be between us. And so God allows an atoning sacrifice for their sins. Meaning their sin is transferred onto something else that dies. Animal sacrifice. Not a great look. God didn't like it either. That's why he brought Jesus. And so there's this system of sacrifices going on. And God says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son for your sins. I want your only son, the fulfillment of your promise, to become the sacrifice for your sins. And Abraham agrees. And uh, he has a horrible couple nights thinking about it. And then they wake up early one morning, and Abraham and Isaac, they go up the hill to the altar where they sacrifice things. They ask the servants to stay behind at a certain point. And Isaac's like, where's the goat, Dad? Where's the daggum goat? Is there a goat? Where's the goat, Dad? And they get up, Isaac's starting to understand what's going on, and they get to the top, and Abraham binds Isaac up and places him on the altar and is preparing to sacrifice him. 
And God stops him and says, no, 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 no. I wanted to see how faithful you are, and your faith is great. And there's a ram in the bushes, and you go sacrifice that instead. Abraham, I would never ask you to sacrifice your one and only son for your sins. I would never ask you to do that. See, God wouldn't ask us to do what he was willing to do for us. And he makes a point here in Genesis chapter 22 of how big he is willing to go to bring relationship to us. Isaac grows up and he has children. He has two sons, twins, Jacob and Esau. His story is actually pretty simple, the story of Isaac. And it's, honestly, it's a reassurance to me that the promise and the blessing of God can live on you even without big spectacular things happening around you all the time. Isaac's got these two kids. Jacob, he tricks uh, his dad into passing the blessing onto him instead of his older brother Esau. There's lentil soup involved. Go read it. It's a great story. Jacob receives the blessing, and now the covenant is upon him and his descendants. And Jacob, he marries a couple women here and there, and they go and they, they go to start a family. And there's this great moment. This is, Genesis is full of these amazing stories where uh, Isaac, uh, Jacob wrestles with God or the angel of God, or somebody from heaven. God and, and this Jacob wrestle, and then at the end, they kind of hit a stalemate, and then God or the angel or whoever touches Jacob, and he dislocates his hip, gives him a limp for life, and he changes his name from Jacob to Israel. And that is where Israel, the name, comes from. And Israel now goes, and he has 12 sons, and those 12 sons would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so... Uh, Jacob, now Israel, is living. He's got these 12 sons, and one of those sons is Judah, who would be the ancestor of David, who would be the ancestor of Jesus. And another one of those sons is Joseph. And Joseph is who takes us into the third movement of Genesis, which is captivity. So what does the second movement of Genesis teach us? Second shows us that we, are, we serve a relational God who desires to be known. He enters into our story through Abraham and he never leaves it again. And the second movement shows us that God's plans do not work on our timeline. And they require faith to see them through. Uh, the third movement is about the third movement. Uh, Joseph is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I've, I did a series on this story annually for the first few years of our church. Some of you will remember Untapped or Something's Brewing. I love it. I love this story. Because it's an incredible story of somebody with a lot of potential a lot of potential that has to have it developed over time in order to see it come into fruition. And it is developed through a process of pain. And I think so many of us can relate to that. Joseph has all this potential as a young man and he's given dreams from God, telling him that he'll be a big leader one day and that he's going to do important things. But his brothers are jealous of him and so they beat him up and they throw him in a pit and eventually they sell him into slavery. Joseph is full of potential and shown a glimpse of his purpose from God, but he's prideful and he's not ready to step into that dream just yet. So over the course of 13 years, God refines him through this process of pain. As a slave, he works for a high-ranking official in the Egyptian government. He manages the, the man, this man Potiphar's whole household. And then one day, Potiphar's wife makes a pass at him and he rejects her. She accuses him of assaulting her to her husband and Joseph is thrown in jail. But God doesn't leave Joseph, even when he's in his season of crushing and pain. Genesis chapter 39, verse 20. While Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him 
He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Maybe you haven't seen God deliver on your promise yet. Now maybe you're in a really difficult season and you just can't really see the way forward or what it looks like on the other side. You may be still in a season where God's not ready to deliver that promise yet. But I believe even in those moments that God is still kind and that he is good and that his presence will not leave you. You have to look for it and you have to find these things. I'm certain that Joseph could have pretty easily said, oh, whoop-de-doo, I'm the warden's favorite. This is great. My life is so good. He's in jail after being a slave. But it says that God began to shape him and develop him in this season. The warden put Joseph in charge. mentioned anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. So he refines his gifts of leadership and management. and He gains wisdom and he grows character through the school of hardship. And one day he gets an opportunity to wow the Pharaoh and he seizes it. Thirteen years after being sold into slavery, he's trusted by the Pharaoh to be the second in command of all of Egypt. And because of the leadership and management and all the abilities he's learned in this season of hardship, he is able to save all of of Egypt and the surrounding nations from a terrible famine. God uses him to prepare them for it and lead them through it. And during that famine, Joseph's family, his brothers, who sold him into slavery, show up looking for help. They are mortified when they see him. They are thinking, this is not going to go well. But Joseph shows mercy and kindness. And they move into Egypt and they settle there. And Genesis ends. Joseph's story, the theme continues of God's closeness to humanity despite the brokenness that they are living in. And we see that God's timing is not our timing, but that his plans for us are good. And we see that God's plan starts in motion many, many, many generations before it comes into fruition. So that's the first 50 chapters of the Bible. We did it. Here's what I want you to see real quick. Just give me five more minutes and we'll be done for the day. The first thing is this. Here's what you need to know about Genesis. God created. you got to get this understanding deep inside of you. God created. This is the thing that the Bible opens with. And it's foundational. You are not an accident. You and everyone before you and all that is around you was made by a good and gracious God. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And He's saying that even in the beginning, through creation, He's there. And He's a part of your creation as well. He made you with purpose and meaning. He has a plan for you, and He's created light for you. Our God is not a distant God. He has been intimately involved in our story since the beginning. And he has a promise and a purpose in mind for you. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him, beforehand, that we should walk in them. He's intimately involved in your story. He has a plan for you just as we see beginning in Genesis. He had a plan for all of humanity. Your life can have greater meaning than you ever imagined. Number two is this. Everything broke. Everything broke. This is essential to the story of God and humanity, and it is a big part of the story of Genesis. 
Because of the events of Genesis chapter 3, the world is broken, centered in and into it. And because of that brokenness, it's hard for us to choose to love God. There's so much pain that separates us from Him and from being able to feel His love. And that's hard. And it's always been hard. The first 10 chapters of Genesis chronicle that brokenness and make it clear that on our own, we're prone to choose brokenness over healing. That the further we get from God's presence, the more depraved we become. The harder it is for us to make good choices. But there's good news about it. And the good news is the story that God began in Genesis. The redemption that He was preparing all the way back in Genesis. The promise He made to Abraham when He said that He was going to make you a blessing to all the nations of the world. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Every single one of us messes up. Every single one of us is broken, sees brokenness, lives in brokenness, experiences brokenness. But God has always been intent on helping us to be free from it, and to be made whole, and to be absolutely rescued from this pattern of sin. The third thing is this. It was God that took the first step. It was God. He moved towards us long before we ever moved towards Him. He loved us first, as John said. He says, in, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He reached out to Abraham first. He made a promise to stay in the story. And from that moment, he has kept his promise. Through Abraham, he reveals his plan to send Jesus, not just to save Abraham's descendants, but to save the whole world as well. And through all of that, God maintains the covenant. He never abandoned. The covenant shows up again. And God is reminding them that when I make promise, I keep the promise. Our God never abandons his promises and he moved first. But the last thing that we see in the story of Genesis is crucial for us to understand as we live in this world. And that is that God's timing is his own. His timing is his own. It doesn't work the way we want it to work. It doesn't go the way we want it to go. That's part of the story. It's always been part of the story. But it doesn't mean that his way isn't good. In fact, his way is, is always good. Even if it doesn't feel like it. Or if we can't see it or we can't understand it. His ways are good and his timing is perfect. I am certain that as Abraham is waiting decades for a child that he was promised. Desperate for relationship, for descendancy. All of these things mulling through his mind all the time. It didn't feel good. 25 years is a very long time to wait on a promise. But God didn't abandon him. He never left him. His presence was always with him. He reminded him of his promise over and over again. He, he sent angels to dine with him. And he says, Abraham, I am not leaving you and your promise is still here. I'm certain that when Joseph was beaten up, thrown in a pit, sold into slavery, he's thinking, so much for the promise God gave me when I was a teenager. 
God revealed in these dreams that Joseph would be a leader of people, that people would bow down. I'm sure it just didn't really feel that way when he was sitting in an Egyptian prison. But God never took his promise from Joseph. He never moved it. He never removed it. He had a design all along. And he was shaping Joseph into who he needed him to be. And he delivers on that promise. God delivers on every single promise. He created you to be intimately relational with him. He wants to be known by you. Genesis tells the story not of a God who is distant and who doesn't care, but of a God who is filled with mercy, compassion, kindness, and who wants to be known. He wants to be known. He steps into humanity's story over and over again because he wants us to know him. And he wants to know us. And he makes promises that he delivers on. And his love for us endures through every season of rebellion. And so, if you're in here today, and that's the story you needed to hear. Because you felt a little bit like God is distant. Like he's, he's not really got a lot for me. He's up there in space somewhere. He doesn't see me. I've got dreams and things I wanted for my life. They're not coming true. You know how long I've waited for this or for that? Did you know that the full meaning of the covenant that God made with Abraham was fulfilled in Christ? That means that Abraham had been dead for thousands of years before God delivered on it. Some of the promises he's made, some of you, aren't for you. They're for the generations that follow you. You are going to be called to sow into things that you will not be able to reap the fruit of because God has bigger dreams for you than yourself. If you're in here today and you needed to be reminded of your relational God, it is all right here in the book of Genesis. He cares for you and he wants to know you. And so if you want to know him, uh, it begins with a conversation just like every relationship does. And you can have him enter into your presence and never depart from it again right here today. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Let's pray this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for trying to do it on my own, God. Forgive me for all the places I've looked. Forgive me for how far I've gotten from you. I want you. I want to be so all that I am from this day on, I am yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.